we heard last week, Paul was in prison in, uh, under house arrest. And yet, because of his trust in Christ, we see joy exuded throughout this. Now, he is about to, in this passage, tell us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He is about to tell us to do that. But right after that, he says, don't be anxious. Now, why is that? Because being anxious is a joy robber. Being anxious drives a wedge between us and the joy that God gives to his people. Have you ever been accused of being a worrier? I know some of you have. Your husband or your wife or your children, oh, you're just a worrier. And some of you would say, well, I've I've been like that ever since I was a kid. I'm just a worrier. That's just the way I am. Now, that's, that's some of you. Then there's others of you that have lots to worry about, and you don't worry, but it's not because of faith. It's just because you just don't really register what's going on around you. You know, sometimes I feel like that's how I am with the economy and everything and the stock market and so on. Well, you know, I just don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about that because, I, you know, part of it is I just don't get it. I don't understand a lot of that, and there's, there's not, not a thing that I can do about it, and so I don't worry about it. Now, that's not because of my great faith. It's just because in that area, I'm rather naive. And so that's, you know, just because you're uh, not necessarily a worrier by nature doesn't mean it's your faith. So we want to analyze that. And we want to take a a deeper look into this. George Mueller said, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. The beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Let's see how Paul put it. In Philippians 4, verse 4, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, (coughs) by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, we do pray now that you would 
even as we have in our singing and in our prayers sought out your peace, recognize that it is through prayer that that peace comes. We pray that you will teach us really what that means in our lives. Help us to to look at our own hearts ruthlessly, to dissect them, to see where anxiety is ruling, to see where we've been robbed of joy, and to see the end of that and the beginning of true faith. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, this is our passage, and we are uh, we're going to come back to this, but I want us to look at a, a couple of other places as we look, look at this phrase where he says, do not be anxious about anything. How do we know if we're anxious? Well, Jesus addressed it, and I, there, there's two, in my mind, prominent places where Jesus addressed this during his ministry, and he did it in a major way, uh, which tells me that this is not by any means a new problem in our day. Uh, So I want you to look over in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew 6, he spoke of it uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? One of the signs... Uh, that we are anxious, that we are warriors, is that our values system gets confused. When we're anxious about things, more often uh, than not, the things that really matter uh, get confused with those things that are not of great importance. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, look, there's life and there's food. Now, which of these, now it's easy when when you put it this way, which of these do you need to be so concerned about, life or food? And then there's the body and and clothing. Should we be concerned about uh, our food and our clothing? Is that what we need to be obsessed by? And yet, what he's saying is that that's what happens so often To us, our values get confused, and instead of being concerned about the really important things, we get concerned about these outward things, these superficial things, that in the the big picture, in the picture of eternity, they just don't matter. Do you even remember what you ate last Monday? You remember what you wore that day? I don't. And yet, that tends to be the things that we focus on 
we worry about. He goes on in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Um, That's a second thing that shows if we are uh, worriers or anxious, we become self-centered. Now, is it wrong to uh, think about those things? Well, of course not. But you think about them with the right perspective. We have to. It's only wrong if we dwell on them, if we worry about those things, because when we do, it's often a sign that we're, we've become self-centered. Here's what I notice also in myself. Can't speak for anyone else. I start taking things more personally. Now, ordinarily, it takes a lot to offend me. Uh, I can't say I was always that way, but, you know, you're a pastor for a long time, and, and uh, it, it takes a good bit to offend me because I realize that a lot of times, most of the time when people say things, they're, they're not aiming it, you know, at you. They're not trying to hurt you. And I've come to realize that over the years. But when I find myself taking things more personally, I realize that it, it's getting turned inward instead of outward. And that's not a good place to be. It's becoming self-centered. He goes on in verse 32, for the Gentiles, and let me just ex- stop and explain. Gentiles, some of your versions may say the pagans. Um, he's talking about those who are without God. Seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You see, that's what uh, sets us apart uh, from unbelief. When, when we become anxious, that which sets us apart from unbelief uh, is diminished. In other words, our actions, our thought patterns, and so on become more like the unbelievers. He says, you know, you're more like the Gentiles, the pagans. You're acting like, he says, when you start being anxious about those things, you're acting more like people that don't even know God. Remember Mueller? The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. Implied is that uh, since God knows that you need these things, if you worry about them, then you're implying that uh, the, the one who can provide is not going to provide. And that's a wrong implication. That's an insult to God. And so that's his focus here. Verse 34 then. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And that's a fourth characteristic, and that is that we dread tomorrow. Do you find yourself with a dread for the future? On the way in early this morning, I I guess I'd have to say I made the mistake of listening to the radio because uh, it was one of those all-night shows, and they were talking to people making predictions for this next year. 
That was not a happy radio program. In fact, I decided I'm not going to listen to that, uh, you know, when I get in my office. Uh, uh, you know, very dire predictions. And, and there's a lot of folks that have just such a, a dread of the future. I just had a friend from Atlanta that uh, this past week had a heart attack. And it's a, a guy a little bit older than me, but uh, we're friend, friends of ours. And I wrote his wife, and uh, I said, you know, Phyllis, tell Bob that there is life after a heart attack. There really is. But you know, another thing that mine did for me was that it made it hard for me to dread the future. Now, that's a good thing. But, you know, when, when you go through something like that, that's one of the values of it. It takes away some of that dread for tomorrow. Now, there's another passage where Jesus addresses this, and it's in the context of kind of a, 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 a hospitality that is going on over in Luke 10. You're going to find this to be familiar as well. This is Mary and Martha. <clears throat> now, I'm, I think you know basically what was going on. Uh, Jesus was visiting in their home. Mary was sitting at uh, Jesus' feet, listening to him, talking with him communing with him, and Martha was up uh, bustling around, uh, getting things ready. And uh, look then at uh, verse 40. Start with 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her, tell her to help me. Uh, when we are in at that anxious, in that worrier mode, we become distracted. We get distracted. And then verse 41, we tend to focus on details rather than the big picture. Look what Jesus said to her. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. <laughs> I'm calling those the, the details here because if you analyze what she was uh, worried about, I don't think the Lord was rebuking her for uh, wanting to get a nice meal together. But I think the rebuke, the gentle rebuke here, came because she was more focused on that, so focused on that, that she was being distracted from having the God of the universe sitting here 
having Jesus there and she could have spent time with him and, and still, I'm sure, put together a very nice meal, which probably Jesus didn't care that much about. He was there to be with them. And so she was focused on the detail. Her attitude was getting in the way of a joy that she could have experienced. One executive drew up a worry chart. And this is what he discovered. 40% of uh, worries were about things that probably would never happen. 30% concerned past decisions that he could not now unmake. 12% dealt with other people's criticism of him. 10% were worries about health. Only 8% he could do anything about. And I think that, you know, that that's just illustrates that most of the things that we tend to worry about, that we tend to focus on and get distracted by, are things that we, we can't really control. But who does control them? And that's where the peace we're going to talk about ought to come from. He goes on in verse 42, and uh, we see that the, the really important is diminished. One thing is necessary, he says. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The Lord's saying that that which is really important has taken second place in your actions, Martha. You've gotten distracted. And so the, the, the urgent, as Stephen Covey and others would say, the, the, the urgent, the crisis in your mind has taken priority over the really important. And Jesus is saying, you need to figure out what's really important and then deal with the other things appropriately. So, in a Harris survey, more than 70% of Americans worried about wasting too much time especially watching television. Now, in those same surveys, they report no concern over personal sins and future judgment. So, you know, does, does that show you how we can get things out of whack? What are, you, what are you really concerned about in your life? Some would say, well, I'm, I'm waiting, you know, he says 70% would say I'm wasting too much time. And yet, there may be these glaring spiritual issues or opportunities that are there. And that's where the focus needs to be. Now, that's just kind of to analyze whether we are that kind of a person. And even though I I think a lot of people perceive me as being rather laid back, I can see myself in this, I assume most of you can, at least in some of these degrees. And if not, see the tendency to be able to fall into those. So what's the prescription from our verse of the year from Paul? Well, he says there's anxiety, but don't be anxious. But he doesn't just, it's not just a, a command 
don't be anxious and then we either obey it or we don't obey it. But he gives you a, a replacement. He said, instead of that anxiety, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's basically the prescription. It's not a magic formula, but it is an answer to anxiety. Several things mentioned here, and <clears throat> these are the things that in future sermons during the year um, I hope to flesh out more. We won't spend all the time on you know, whether we are anxious or not, uh, uh, but we'll be talking more about the, uh, this other aspect. So you've got the first thing is prayer. It's an act of worship, a general word, and it, it just invokes God. We'll be expanding on what that, that means. Now, I don't typically get my theology from bumper stickers or refrigerator magnets, but I did see a refrigerator magnet that I, I thought was profound. It said, pray or worry but you can't do both. And, th and that might just summarize our verse of the year. You've got to make a choice. Which am I going to do? And realize you, just, you, you can't have a foot in each world there. And sometimes you will be tipping back over toward the worry, and you've got to see your need for prayer. How's he describe that? He talks about petition. Now, our translation says uh, supplication. Uh, that's our cry of personal need. It's an earnest request uh, for some special good. Travel back 200 years in uh, Christian history to John Newton. We may know him as uh, uh, the writer of Amazing Grace. Wonderful testimony. He was also known for some rather amazing uh, answers to prayer, big prayers of his. He called them large askings. I like that phrase, large askings. Now, someone kind of pinned him down and, and asked him about that. How can you ask for such large things from God? He went back to probably a legendary story of a man who asked Alexander the Great to give him a huge sum of money uh, in exchange for him being able to marry his daughter. Alexander granted the request of the huge sum of money. He said, see my treasurer and uh, he will pay you every penny of that. Well, when he got to the treasurer, the, the, the treasurer said, well, I can't grant that request without hearing directly from him. So he went back to Alexander, and he tried to convince him, look, you can pay him a lot less money, just a little fraction of that. And Alexander, in this uh, story, said, no, let him have it all that he requests. I like that fellow. He does me honor. He treats me 
like a king and proves by what he asks that he believes me to be both rich and generous. Now, Newton's conclusion from that is in the same way we should go to the throne of grace and do him honor, petition, show your honorable views of the love and the riches and bounty of the king when you ask. And then it says, with thanksgiving. That's the context for prayer. Now, for what? Well, do you believe God's in control? you believe he always does what's best for you? Do you believe God is good all the time? If you believe those things, then you can give thanks. Matthew Henry, who we may know as uh, the Bible commentator, was once robbed by a highwayman. In his diary, he wrote this, Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Now, how do you think of those things? I'm convinced it's because he knew that in all these circumstances, he was to give thanks And so he practiced that in his life so that when these difficult times came, his mind was driven to thanksgiving. What can I give thanks for? And that's my prayer for us as a congregation. That as this is being our verse of the year, that as we pray, we will do it with thanksgiving. And by the end of this year, we will be better at thinking of the things that we are thankful for than we are now. And then he says, present your requests. That may be the most important aspect. It's not just a formula, but we are to present them before him. And then verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute, what was that? I almost heard some audible objections. Some of you, when you hear that, say, wait a minute. Well, I've done all that. I was anxious. I prayed. I gave thanks. I presented my request. And I don't have any peace. What's the deal? Let me give you several possibilities. The first one is this. Ask yourself, do I have a right to approach God? A right? Who does have a right? His children do. Those who are in relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for their eternal life. That's, those are the ones who have the right. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us then (coughs) with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Who is entitled? Only those who are related to the King through Jesus Christ. If you have the right, ask yourself this. Have I been praying or have I said a prayer? What's the difference there? Have you been really talking to God? Or have you been guilty of what Jesus talks about in that same Sermon on the Mount, vain repetition? Just saying a prayer because it's the thing to do. There's a difference. And then thirdly, if you don't have peace, ask yourself, is my peace or anxiety resting on the answer to my prayer or on God's goodness and sovereignty? Are you at peace when God answers your prayer your way, but then anxious when he says no or wait? See, that, that's a problem. Because that implies that He's not doing what's best for you. And you've got to decide. Will he always do what's best for me? And if if he will, then the answer no is the most gracious answer for us when he gives that. Because he is good all the time. Ask and it will be given to you. But Jesus said, or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You have got to decide if you really believe that or not. Robert Murray McShane said, God will either give you what you ask or something far better. Let's bow together.